1: Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children in special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Class Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. Welcome to the Bright Knot Broken Show on the Coffee Clatch. We are so excited tonight to bring you a very special issue that's near and dear to our hearts, Rebecca and I. And uh, before we get started tonight and I introduce our guests, I've got just a couple of advertisements, um, some wonderful sponsors we have for the show that I want to just quickly mention here. If you're a parent with a newly diagnosed child with autism, how can you help your child who's just been diagnosed with autism? The online training course is Discover behavioral intervention and it's the answer real parents take you through applied behavior analysis in a 10-step module you can learn more at you the letter U discovering.org and we're also proud to have Mayor Johnson which is your special education super source sponsoring tonight's show the Mayor Johnson sale is on right now and you can enjoy drastic savings on hundreds of products at mayorjohnson.com that's mayor hyphen johnson.com And as I mentioned, tonight is a very exciting night. We have a special guest. His name is Gary Greenberg, and he is the author of a brand-new book called The Book of Woe which was based, uh, began on an article that he wrote, but I'm going to let him talk about that. What I want to tell you is, if you're an individual, a parent, or a professional who has ever dealt with a confusing process of obtaining a mental health diagnosis, such as autism, ADHD, bipolar, and other things that we discuss here on the show, you want to hear this discussion tonight. Um, Gary is not only a noted author, but he is also a noted critic of the American Psychiatric Association and, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not of the association, but of psychiatry itself, and he is here to talk about that in the Book of Woe, a few quotes that I'd like to talk about um, that have been said about this book because it's just getting wonderful press. It's, um, it's getting the exposure that this topic needs. And uh, one of those quotes said, like too big to fail to look at Wall Street, the Book of Woe is an inside view of an institution on the brink of disaster, the American Psychiatric Association, which recently completed their fifth edition of the DSM, which we've talked about a whole lot here, a book. That guides the allocation of billions of taxpayer dollars for research and treatment. Greenberg's account of the history behind the DSM and his behind the scenes reporting of the deeply flawed process by which the DSM 5 has been revised is both riveting and disturbing. Gary, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, it's good to be here.
1: We are so glad to have you tonight. And as we were discussing uh, before airtime here, We, um, and as our listeners well know, we also have covered this topic, the DSM, our Layman's Guide to the DSM, and um, you've just expanded on everything we think and then some, and so um, in your words, I'd like, if you would, to tell us a little bit more about your background in mental health, exactly what you do, and what led you to write this particular much-needed book.
2: Well, I'm a clinician, and I've been practicing uh, psychotherapy for about 30 years. And like every clinician, uh, or virtually everyone, certainly everyone that I know, um, my relationship with the DSM is a fraught one. It's a relationship that's based on cynicism. You know, we have to use the book, or so we think, in order to... Diagnose our patients, but we all know that you know what the real game is. The real game is putting down the the code that will get the insurance company to reimburse us or, or our patient, depending on how we structure our practice um, for treatment. So, even if most of us believe that either the diagnosis code doesn't really match the patient, or even if it does, that is not really an illness, um, we do it. Because that's uh, that's just the way the game is played. Uh-huh. So you know, to 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 be in a business which is supposed to be all about honesty, which of course is what therapy is supposed to be about, and to base it on a lie always struck me as a really bad idea.
1: <laughs> um,
2: and part of the way to respond to that bad idea is, for me anyway, has been to take myself as far out of that business as possible and to work without diagnoses um, because every there's no real reason to use them clinically other than to get paid. Um, and uh, part of my response to that predicament has been to try to understand it and to try to understand how the DSM got to be the way it is and also to see if there really is anything in it that can be used. I mean, it's easy enough to be cynical about it, but is there any way in which it is useful? So those have been interests of mine. And and as I've developed my writing career, I've always been encountering the DSM because one of the things I've been interested in in various ways is the way that medical diagnosis gets used uh, in ways that don't have anything to do with medicine. Medical diagnoses get used to negotiate the moral world often. And so these two interests came together together Uh, And then the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, uh, did me the colossal favor of of having a revision for me to write about. So there was a story, the story of how the thing got put together, which was an opportunity, among other things, to do the history of the DSM and to write about some of the real tension points that uh, are in it and and to write about the influence that it has, possibly undeserved, on the uh, entire mental health industry.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I agree with everything you just said, and I think you know people. I'm not have, sure I
2: agree with everything I just said, but so I'm glad somebody... Well,
1: I and something <laughs> I noticed because you are very frank. You are, and and uh, I've noticed that you know some people have criticized your critique <laughs> because of your frankness. But I would say with with what you just described, you're very positive in that you. Um, you know, you're not just out to assail this as the big bad monster. That you, you know, you're looking and you have looked for what can we, what can we, you know, take away from this to be beneficial. Yes. And unfortunately, I, am I'm, I'm hearing you say, and I'm, I'm seeing what you've written that um, there's a disappointing answer to that.
2: Well, let's let's start with what is good about the DSM, okay? Because that's, that's okay. really important, particularly for what I presume is your audience. I mean, Mm -hmm. the the DSM is is born out of the desire to secure services for people. Um, It's a totally flawed way to go about it, and we'll get to that later, but it's really important to remember that the purpose of the DSM, one of the main purposes of the DSM, is is to make sure that people can get treatment. Um, and other resources that are available to us when we are diagnosed with an illness. It's not just treatment, it's also tolerance, respect, uh, compassion, sympathy, some things that are really precious in our society and hard to come by, um, especially when the person who's trying to come by them is different in some way and troublesome in some way. And the DSM is an attempt to medicalize those kinds of problems in such a way as to get medical resources. Another thing that the DSM does is it it, it uh, gives a framework for the research um, that people do. Um, it gives a framework for uh, drug companies to try to develop uh, drugs for uh, helping people. And so without the DSM or something like it, it would be really hard to have uh, a mental health industry. Um, and while I use the word industry in that is sort of pointed, it's also true that we rely on that industry, many of us anyway, to uh, help take care of us. So that's what's good about the DSM. And it's been very effective at this.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know... Um I think one of the things that really stood out because I know it was something that, as I mentioned, we just couldn't expand on, but it needed to be done. And when you did it, we said bravo. <laughs> and that is, you they know, better, to really better un- me than you, right? <laughs> Uh, well, <laughs> yes, because we know what went into that, absolutely, and uh-huh. that is looking at the history because you really have to do that. We really have to to look at that and i I realize you know we would need probably a whole evening to to get into that, but if you could summarize for us, just kind of. Go through for for those listening that you know this has finally intrigued them to the point of you know for whatever reason the d s m has affected their life and they they'd like to know about that and and what you talk about um can you can you give us a little bit of the history well sure i can.
2: let me let me do two things Let me first just give you the brief chronology just because it's, in, it's in, it might be interesting the right. uh, the d s m really was born uh in, in its nascent form in the eighteen forties when the government US government the census bureau wanted to be able to count among the citizens people who were in insane what were called at the time insane asylums or lunatic asylums
1: mm-hmm. and
2: so they asked doctors to count them because they figured doctors were the ones who were most likely to know where all the insane people were whether they were in asylums or you know locked away in the corner of somebody's house and with that effort um, it, it, it as it fell to the doctors, and increasingly, this is when psychiatry was the, being born as a profession, it fell to the superintendents of the hospitals for the insane. That's what they were called at the time. And they um, sort of, by accident, got the franchise on counting the mentally ill. And after a while, something else happened, which is that medicine changed in a way that made diagnosis much more important than it used to be. And the reason for that is because suddenly doctors were actually able to make diagnoses based on uh, biological findings. In the the mid-19th century, uh, doctors were able to find germs under microscopes and attribute the cause of illness to those germs. And this was an enormous change. Medicine had really been unchanged for thousands of years before that happened. But when it happened, two things occurred. One of them is, over the next 50 or 60 years, between, say, let's say 1850 or 1860 and 1910 or 1920, miracle cures were discovered, among them penicillin and other anti uh, antimicrobial agents. And uh, ultimately, they discovered a way to, that, that the people who had diabetes were suffering from a lack of insulin and how to provide insulin for them. And the expectation of medicine changed such that people began to think that doctors could actually find the causes of their diseases, of their suffering, in their bodies, locate them, tar- and target them with magic bullets. And, they, and, the, and doctors did this. And infants, children stopped dying from strep throat. And older people stopped dying from pneumonia. And this, this was a remarkable transformation but it created an expectation that every suffering, every form of suffering, would be understandable in that fashion. So the, the a myth took hold in in, in 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 especially in the United States and in Europe about what doctors could do. So in the meantime, psychiatrists were sort of the least able to keep up with that whole transformation because while everybody else had all these biological findings, they were understanding how the liver worked, how the pancreas worked, how the lungs worked, how the heart worked. It was very hard, if not impossible, to figure out how the brain worked. And that was presumably where mental illness was coming from. So as this chronology was unfolding and these uh, psychiatrists were simply counting the mentally ill, they were also noticing that they couldn't categorize them. They couldn't say what they had because medicine and psychiatry didn't have the categories and this was noticed by the end of the 19th century as a real problem it was a problem that called into question the credibility of the profession and this has been the ongoing problem and this is the real history that you need to know about the chronology continues through the 20th century uh, with attempts to count and then to categorize. And then after World War II, uh, the American Psychiatric Association decided to turn what had been up until then called the statistical manual into a diagnostic and statistical manual. And the first one of those was printed and it was published in 1952. But in the meantime, what was going on was that psychiatry was having a series of credibility crises, and the credibility crises were attributed specifically to psychiatry's inability to diagnose people with the same kind of specificity as the other medical specialties could. And so to put it in a sort of a colloquial way, psychiatry had an inferiority complex uh, that really said that that the, the treatment, so to speak, was going to be a coherent diagnostic system. But every time they tried it, it failed and they found themselves back in the position where their credibility was being questioned. So people didn't have confidence in psychiatry. Now, for many years, this got lost. This whole question was lost. It wasn't answered. It wasn't like they came up with a coherent diagnostic system, but because psychoanalysis was the dominant form of treatment and because psychoanalysis really didn't depend on, it wasn't a particularly medical procedure, uh, it, it didn't matter so much. But then... In the nineteen or in the late 1960s, certain other problems occurred. For instance, it became clear that, to the extent that they did diagnose patients, doctors, psychiatrists, rarely agreed on what the diagnosis should be. You said the same patient presented to two different doctors would likely come up with two different. Diagnoses. And the, the same patient diagnosed by American doctors was more likely to come up with a diagnosis of schizophrenia, whereas in Britain, that same patient would come up with a diagnosis of bipolar, what they called at the time, manic depression. There was uh, a, a, an embarrassment uh, when a, a, a study called On Being Sane in Insane Places came out, which basically involved... A bunch of graduate students who checked themselves into a mental hospital on very, very slim evidence. They showed up at emergency rooms and said that they had heard the word "thud" in their heads, and they were admitted as schizophrenics. And in some cases, uh, stayed for almost two months before they finally were sprung from the um, from the uh, mental hospital. And finally, famously, the American Psychiatric Association was forced to delete to delete. Homosexuality from the DSM, which at the time was in its second edition in 1973. And these three events really taken together caused a huge loss of confidence in psychiatry, so severe, because it it looked like they couldn't agree on what mental disorders people had, and even when they could agree, they couldn't really say that, I mean, because how hard is it to agree on what homosexuality is? But then they couldn't prove that that it was a disease. So who lost faith in them were the insurers and the government. And the insurers and the government said together, we're questioning whether or not we're going to support you guys. We're questioning whether we're going to give you research dollars, and we're questioning whether we're going to give you reimbursement money. And once again, the uh, psychiatrists were in this position where their inability to diagnose illness was causing them to lose uh, the confidence of people. And so they had to revamp the diagnostic system, and that's what happened in 1980 with the emergence of the DSM-3, which was a totally different approach to diagnosis and is the same approach that's being used today. And the approach is simple. You take the symptoms. of, of you, you, you look at the way people who you think are mentally ill act and what they say and uh, how they feel and all of that, and you extract from that a set of criteria, a set of symptoms, and those symptoms become the criteria by which the category is known so major depression all of a sudden from a, was was a was a disorder that was diagnosed when a person had 5 of 9 symptoms and attention deficit disorder became an official uh disorder and so did many other uh, was the first time that autism was uh noted and uh given criteria so that part of the history is all about trying to establish the professional credibility of
1: psychiatry. Well, and when you got to to nineteen eighty, and and that was one of my questions was, you know, when as the manual has evolved, you know, did we? I mean, has have the problems just continued to snowball? And you know, nineteen eighty, as you pointed out, was a critical turning point and And I know, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. your um similarities and differences with Alan Francis, who we've also had here on the show. And I I think ADHD, too, for us, um, our first book was called The ADHD Autism Connection. And mm-hmm. in researching that, we discovered these flaws that um, didn't make any sense at all, that really sort of shook what we thought about disorders as a whole, but especially ADHD, um, to the core, And um, so we'll certainly get into that in a minute. But um, you're absolutely right about um, 1980 being a different um, attempting to kind of solve the problems that were there.
2: Yeah, and one thing to note about that is that when the psychiatrists uh, who wanted to change the DSM started to enforce, you know, started to implement this idea during the 1970s, they met with tremendous resistance from many different quarters, mostly from psychoanalysts. And what they were worried about was that the diagnostic system, the new diagnostic system, would exclude much of what the psycho- psychoanalysts were treating. Uh, and so an open invitation was issued by the people doing the DSM saying, look, tell us who you're treating and we'll make disorders to cover them. And that's why the dsm 3 which came out in 1980, was you know four times the length in pages of the DSM2 and had maybe two and a half times the number of diagnoses in it because it was an intentional effort to cover as many people as much suffering as possible
1: absolutely um which which leads me to and it and to us as lay people these were these were I don't want to say big terms, but they were terms that we don't we wouldn't normally write about in a in a parent friendly manual <laughs> in a uh-huh. parent friendly book but it I've noticed it in several of the articles that talk about your book, and that is the issue of reliability and validity and right
2: well so so you know, as I said earlier, there were these crises and uh, these uh-huh. these embarrassments and and one of them the one about the doctors not being able to agree on what the patients had. Is about reliability. Reliability is simply the uh, likelihood that any two doctors will agree on a diagnosis. That if, if if it's if it's likely that given all other things being equal, if the doctors are trained well and the patient is the same patient and they get the doctors get the same information from the same patient, if they agree, then chances are. The agreement is the result of the diagnosis being well constructed. Uh, so, and, and that's that's what's that's what's meant by saying a diagnosis is reliable. It will yield agreement. The other problem, the one that has to do with whether or not a person, whether or not a, a, a homosexuality is a disease, that's a problem called validity. And of disease is, is valid, uh, In our expectation anyway is that a disease is valid when it has some kind of biological underpinning. Now, I don't want to say that I think that's actually the best way to validate a disease. In fact, I'm not sure that it is. But it is certainly what we expect. And more to the point, uh, we don't know any other way to validate a disease. That's, that's all there is. That's the only game in town. And that's why, you know, when you have, let's let's take something non-psychiatric like uh, fibromyalgia, when people are complaining of the pain and fibromyalgia, nobody wants to take them seriously until they can find some kind of biological finding that allows us to say, oh, yeah, that's a real disease as opposed to something you just made up. So whether or not that's fair, that is what we expect. And the DSM never attempted to validate its disease its disorders. They are purely constructs. They're ideas about how symptoms group together and uh they, they you know, you figure out how symptoms group together and then you give it a name. So the D S M three was a more reliable document than the D S M two, but the validity problem got kicked down the road.
1: And and really you can't have validity without reliability is that the equation
2: no i don't think that's true i mean clearly you can have reliability without validity it just doesn't mean anything i mean you and i could agree easily as i said earlier we could agree that uh, uh pretty well on how we would establish that a person is gay right mm-hmm. we would just ask them <laughs> I mean, these days you could, and and so, or we could come up with diagnostic criteria for gayness. I mean, I, I don't want to make light of that, but you know, we we, we could do that for lots of things. But that just because you and I can agree on a definition and a description, and a name, doesn't mean that what we've agreed on is real, or that it's a medical disorder. So you can definitely have reliability without validity. That's what the DSM is. What the problem here isn't isn't so much that you can't have validity, or I'm sorry, the, the, the two have to go together. The problem here is that making the DSM more reliable um, gave the American Psychiatric Association, which owns the DSM, the opportunity to say, see, now, now we have a scientific document. Look at those reliability numbers. It's scientific now. And that was the trick.
1: That but when really there's questionable – right, but – and am I right, though? I, I understand what you're saying. When there's questionable reliability, it undermines the validity. Well, if your
2: reliability is questionable and your validity is non-existent, then you've got a real problem. And by the way, that's what happened in the DSM-5. <laughs> but that's sort of getting ahead of the story.
1: Right,
0: right.
2: I mean, the, 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 look, the DSM-3 cooked the books to make their validity figures even stronger than they might have been they did everything they could to establish reliability as strong as possible um and they succeeded to some extent it certainly was more reliable than the dsm 2 but they never they never tackled the validity problem
1: right and and i noticed we um we shared a- A citation. I think we used it quite a bit in our chapter, and I was actually I was just looking at it because I know that you you covered it too, and I think the authors were Spiegel, and it was when um, they were talking about the issue of um, Robert Spitzer and Alan Francis in their attempt to to sort of solve this problem when they uh, really wanted this paradigm shift with DSM three. Yeah, and and. The article um, had stated, actually, that a Spitzer, frankly, commented on the reliability of DSM, saying any claim that the problem has been solved is just not true, as bad as he wanted it. That, um, you know, he, I mean, and you're right. It's sort of like it's it's been the chase from the very beginning, and DSM-5 has only exacerbated that chase. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Absolutely. Well, and... And speaking of of that issue, we had a couple of guests on the show that um, had written an article critiquing the um, epistemology, uh, the scientific epistemology of ADHD. And again, as I mentioned, that's a diagnosis that we've really taken apart upside down and backwards. And um, as far as we know, there's only a couple of... Of very brave researchers who have come out to to really bluntly say that this is a place where you can boldly see that scientific method is is not. <laughs> and- yeah,
2: ADHD in this respect isn't different from any other diagnosis in the DSM. What is different is that ADHD is generally sold to parents and to the public at large um, as a uh you know as a as a biologically based disease in other words you'll get a big sales pitch about ADHD that this is real that there's something wrong with the brains of these kids and that the stimulants are somehow correcting whatever it is that's wrong and that's just you know that's 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 uh, you know I'm not going to go as far as to call it a lie but it's certainly a myth
1: absolutely and well and we think it serves as, as an example and especially since um it's one of the largest disorders there was a
2: as an a example of what
1: an example of how um the the construct rather than the scientific um you know, it it doesn't hold up. It's a construct. It's yes. it, it's a theory that, unfortunately, although there have been many attempts, we don't have current brain-based models that no, but, um, but provide for really important important data. It.
2: You know, especially for those who feel critical of this diagnosis and want to talk intelligently about it, it's really important to see this. When you say that it doesn't hold up, the reason it, the, the 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 reason you could say it doesn't hold up is because those brain findings just haven't materialized. Now, some optimistic doctors will say, well, yeah, they haven't materialized yet, but they will. But the fact of the matter is that they've tried, and with the crude instruments at hand, our fMRIs and so on, uh, there haven't been, and and with genetic testing, there hasn't been any uh, strong correlations shown. But what's also important to see is that it is not impossible by any stretch for two people to agree on whether on, on whether or not a kid meets the criteria for ADHD, or to put it another way, that set of criteria captures something.
1: Oh, it oh it does, and it, and actually it, it's it's one of the most puzzling aspects that we had before we got to this book to really kind of delve into you know what sets up the this system, what are we looking at? What's the model for all of these disorders? But we specifically focused on autism and ADHD. And mm-hmm. interestingly with what you just said, our experience was in reviewing every piece of evidence we could find that these symptoms are not solely asked and answered under the topic of ADHD, that that these symptoms, many of them that, that describe, which yet many people can't agree what are the symptoms of ADHD, but so many of them are asked by other disor- asked and answered by other disorders such as autism and that is where the real problem comes in and and I know that's that's getting to my next question here that you know um the issue of comorbidity is really the heart and soul of how a categorical system um just can't work when you have more co- comorbidity than you do a single that you can absolutely say that these symptoms belong to a single disorder.
2: Yes, that's that's right. And 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 so what you have are uh you, you know, you have the indication that the system it doesn't really work because too many people come up positive for more than one diagnosis. Um and and clearly what's going on there is that uh we have we we can identify symptoms pretty well. We can say okay, Let's let's call impulsivity a symptom for a moment. You can see impulsivity in many disorders. Now, the right. dream of the DSM right. is that you, you by linking it with other symptoms, then the impulsivity can can be seen as only as a as a symptom of only one disorder. But as you just said, and you're correct about this, it doesn't really work that way. Epidemiological studies show over and over again that the DSM does not do a good job of finding a single diagnosis for most people. Um, so I, I don't remember what the numbers are, but it's in excess of 30% of the people who get a the DSM diagnosis really get more than one.
1: Right. And then the numbers in ADHD with some of the research that we uncovered have been as high as 100% comorbidity. Which yes, that's just, right. just told- seems crazy. Like you have to stop and say, are, are we sure we knew what we were looking for in the first place?
2: Right. And so that that not only sheds, shows sheds doubt on on the validity of the diagnosis and here here you know if if a diagnosis is continually uh you know if there's continually comorbidity then you have to wonder if the diagnoses are valid um right, but right. another thing that that points to is that the uh that the uh, the DSM that the, the problem of comorbidity opens up the DSM to innovations that don't that sometimes cause more trouble than they solve and what I'm thinking of when I say this was the innovation uh led by Joseph Biederman to right. uh take a, a, a subgroup of ADHD kids and call them bipolar. Mm-hmm. And this was this was a you know a real it's a real uh, eye opener when it comes to the flexibility of the D S M and when I say flexibility that's not necessarily a good thing.
1: Right. Well, that you're actually getting. Actually, you just segued beautifully into my next question.
2: Nicely done. <laughs> which, huh?
1: which was which was another topic. We um these these particular researchers that we had on that that wrote a very very candid paper on the epistemology, which that was a word I, I had a hard time actually pronouncing that word, but I have since mm-hmm. um come become comfortable with it and understanding that it that it explains what we've been talking about and. And they had said when they read our DSM chapter, and at the time I'm sure they would have um, certainly had good things to say about your book, but since it wasn't there, they they actually gave us a compliment beyond anything that – you know, we were humbled to the core. They said that our critique was the best of the ill-conceived nosology DSM, and they said that in reference to uh, being very angry over the whole situation with Biederman, very disgusted mm-hmm. over over what went on. And I noticed the Boston Globe in an article that was talking about your book the other day, um, The Book of Woe, said that uh, worse than unreliable, Greenberg alleges repeatedly that DSM-5 is dishonest. And your reporting on those conflicts of interest, such as in the case of Joseph Biederman, was excellent and spot on. And uh, if you would, just expand on that a little bit and tell us what can we do about making these more transparent? Well, uh,
2: yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll get
1: to that in a minute. Let,
2: Let me tell the story first. And one of the interesting things about the story is that it's only indirectly about the DSM it's it's uh, not so much about what's in the dsm as what's not in the dsm so what happened here is that you had uh, increasingly kids were coming to the attention of clinicians who seemed to have a particularly malignant form of adhd that is to say their impulsivity their irritability their um uh, and, and and other symptoms that weren't generally pronounced in adhd like uh hypersexuality uh and violence, even uh, suddenly there was this this cohort of, of kids that was like this. Now, it's hard to know what that really means. Does it mean that suddenly people were just seeing it more, or was it there more? I mean, this is always the question. But the folks at Harvard who worked with uh, Dr. Biederman got a, an idea that what they were really seeing here was an infant, uh, was a child, a juvenile form of um, bipolar disorder. Now, bipolar disorder, especially then, required that people have manic episodes, episodic mania. And the problem here was these these kids didn't have episodic mania. They had chronic irritability. They were very difficult to handle. They couldn't be soothed. And Biederman, through some, I don't know, sleight of hand, I would call it, um, sort of got it in his head that you could equate childhood uh, irritability, chronic irritability, with... He sort of said it was the childhood equivalent of episodic mania and proceeded to do a set of studies that purported to show this. And I, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to describe these studies without boring everybody out of their skulls. So I'll just <laughs> I'll just tell you to take my word for it that that they constructed the studies in such a way as to create, as to single out a population of ADHD kids and say these kids are really properly understood as bipolar. Now, what that did was it opened the way to treating these children with antipsychotic drugs, and that's a whole different set of problems, that antipsychotic drugs came to be rebranded as mood stabilizers at around the same time. And so suddenly these kids who might previously have been given stimulants or even a drug like Depakote were suddenly being given drugs like Risperidol, Geodon, Zyprexa, powerful drugs designed as antipsychotics, that um, had side effects that included obesity and diabetes. Now, if you're a parent of a kid who is, you know, prone to these terrific outbursts of temper, these frightening, frightening kinds of children who you're afraid to leave alone, who you're afraid to say no to because if you say no, they might throw themselves out a window, and I'm not exaggerating. To hear from a doctor that your child has bipolar disorder, as horrible as that is, at least it gives you an answer. And to hear that because you have bipolar disorder, you need to take these drugs, as horrible as they are, at least there's some relief in sight. And indeed, antipsychotic drugs calm kids down. Well, of course they do. They're major tranquilizers. Um, so this thing really picked up speed, and suddenly there was a, this, this 40-fold increase in the number of kids taking antipsychotics. Um now, it turned out, and this is where, oh, and by the way, the, the way they did this with the DSM wasn't, they didn't change the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. They used a little loophole in the DSM called the NOS diagnosis, the not otherwise specified. And they diagnosed these kids with mood. Dis, uh, with, sorry, bipolar disorder, not otherwise specified, which allowed them to diagnose the kids that way, even if they didn't meet the criteria. And the result was that you had all of these kids on these drugs, and it turned out, and this is the really horrifying part of this story,
1: mm-hmm. Dr.
2: Biederman was getting paid by Johnson & Johnson, makers of Risperidol, to uh, conduct his studies. Now, I'm not saying that Biederman cooked his books in order to make J&J happy. Mm-hmm. In fact, I don't think he did. But the it, that just doesn't pass the smell test. No. That's just there is just no way. That's that, over the
1: top and beyond it, it, conflict of interest. It,
2: yes, it, it, yes, it, it is. It is. It's corruption, mm-hmm. and he was caught red-handed. Um, but interestingly, very little bad happened to him. Uh, he's still at Harvard, as far as I know, and uh, he he was you know he he put up a pretty good fight in public. I, th- I think he lost the fight, but still, you right. know, he he came away from it with his job. And to some extent, his reputation intact. Uh, so, can, can I tell you what happened with this in DSM-5? Do you want to hear?
1: The oh yes, of this? please, please. So, yes.
2: so uh, what Biederman did. To be fair, you said earlier that you know my critique is of psychiatry. It is, but really my critique is of the American Psychiatric Association uh, and and the DSM. There are. I talked to probably a hundred psychiatrists for this book. I didn't come away from them feeling like I'd been slimed or like they were awful people. And and they were good people and some of them saw what was going on with Biederman and felt really bad about it. Right. And a group of them uh, were involved in the Childhood Disorders Workgroup Committee. Uh, the, these, the DSM is made up by committees, that's why it's such a terrible read because it's like anything else made by a committee, you know, it's really cumbersome. And, right. um, and 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 they decided that they would rescue these children, literally, from, from the bipolar diagnosis. And how did they do this? They didn't. This is really interesting. They didn't do it by just inserting language in the DSM, forbidding doctors from diagnosing children who don't have episodic mania with bipolar disorder. That would have been the immediate way to solve the problem. And let these kids be diagnosed with either attention deficit or with oppositional defiant disorder, even though they met the criteria particularly for oppositional defiant disorder, ODD. They didn't want them to get diagnosed with ODD because ODD doesn't get resources. So it's a disorder, as the guy who who, who sort of led this effort described it, it's a disorder with a bad reputation. Nobody really wants it. It doesn't do much good. Insurance companies don't pay very much for it. It doesn't get much research, et cetera besides we just got a stupid name. So on top so what they did was they decided to create a new diagnosis which ultimately was called disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. It was originally called temper dysphoria disorder, but they changed the name. The the outcome of this is that now we have a brand new diagnosis in the DSM, which has never really been studied except by the group that originated it, who as I say, who had good intentions, but their studies have never been replicated independently. And there's nothing to stop the drug companies from coming up with it, from using that diagnosis to get a new indication for their drugs. And in fact, even if the drug companies don't do that, there's nothing to stop psychiatrists right now or pediatricians from prescribing Zyprexa or Geodon or Abilify or Risperidol to children to treat their DMDD. It's just a new disorder, but the the solution to the problem I, I write this in my book this is like swallowing a spider to kill a fly you know in the old the story of the old lady right mm-hmm. it, it it it's it's just creating more trouble
1: well and and big trouble if you look at some of the the negative aspects here of you know that our big controversy, and I know Temple Grandin, who wrote on a, on our book Bright Not Broken with us, she is just outraged over some of these medications, especially Risperdal, being one of them, being given to young children where the effects haven't been studied, and even if they have, it's just flat out wrong and and awful. And but, you, know, um,
2: you know, you know, the the guy that invented the lobotomy won the Nobel Prize for medicine.
1: <laughs>
2: okay. That was only in 1929. I I, I think that's the year, and I I could be wrong, but sometime in that neighborhood. Uh, Now, within 50 years, the, the procedure had been discredited. So 50 years from now, what we're doing to our children with these drugs is going to be seen in the same way that what he was doing with his ice pick to mental hospital patients is seen today. There's no question about this. This is—it's uh, not even a scandal. It's—it's—it's a—it's a—it's a, it's an injustice of massive proportion that Absolutely. these drugs are being used indiscriminately with children, when we don't even—we don't understand how the drugs work. We don't understand all of what their side effects are, and we also don't understand how the brain develops. Consequently, there is no knowledge about what the actual effect is of a daily dose of Zyprexa or one of these drugs on the developing brain. And we're beginning to find out. I mean, I'm a clinician. I see these kids now. They come in at the age of 17 or 18 years old. They've been on a drug, even if it's not one of the big ones like Abilify. They've been on Adderall since they were nine. They have no idea who they are. They have no, and and by the way, it can't be teased out. At this point, the the, the Adderall is sort of grafted on to their personality,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and and this uh, drugging of our children is is just so disturbing, and yet
1: it's ubiquitous. it's it's beyond words it is and i mean we're we're both parents and we're also um people who have felt that this injustice has has come full circle when we talk about it on in the terms you just did and and it's why we feel something needs to be done and if we try to attempt to you know just go after the Biedermans or go after a diagnosis such as ADHD because so many of the medications come from there especially with the behavior and ODD and everything that gives license to it and heaven forbid the the new license for for this replacement of ODD which is is I would agree um I know we both would that this is just an a new a new license to to keep on more of the same but but in a frightening way with even less data.
2: Um, That's right. Yeah, well, I mean by definition less da- data because <laughs> the diagnosis is all of 7 days old <laughs> literally. <laughs> so so how much how much data could there be? You know, nobody's been able to have a crack at it and here's, you know, one of the things I write about in in the book is how when these diagnoses are invented, uh, th- there are certain procedural uh, issues, and uh, and also just the way the a- the American Psychiatric Association behaves prevents other researchers from researching them before they become official. And so there's even less knowledge than there could have been. There was never going to be a lot, but now now there's less. And I have an I have an idea, by the way, about how. I mean, one of the things I do with with people who come in and say, you know, my doctor wants to put my child on antidepressants or stimulants or whatever, As I talked, I talked to them about how once you go down that road, there is no turning back. Once you, have a, once you have introduced the drugs, you have then created a situation where everything you do afterwards will be in the context of the child taking the drugs. Now, I don't say that to stop them. I say that to make sure they understand the magnitude of the decision. Another thing that I would suggest, and of course this is probably illegal, but I'm going to suggest it anyway, I think every parent who wants to put their child on psychiatric drugs, well, I don't know about psychiatrics, but but on the uh, the ADHD drugs, the stimulants, should take that drug themselves just Mm -hmm. to see what it is that they're getting their child into. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I say that because I think it's really important to know and I also think it's astonishing that a drug like amphetamine, uh, which is what Adderall is, um, is being um, handed out as medicine to nine-year-olds, five-year-olds. Right. It's astonishing. and And I think that most parents, were they to take that drug themselves and see what it's like, would at least think twice.
1: Absolutely. And you know, it's it's one of the things that we try to promote and it really is the conclusion we came to. We while well, our hats are off to you in the good fight of exposing this flawed system and all of the of the wars that are going on both inside and outside, publicly and politically and professionally. I mean it, it really takes um a brave heart soul to get in there and do what you've done. Uh-huh. And but we you know we felt like yes it needs to be exposed and we're we're right there beside you but we also felt as we were looking at it, it we felt like we were just swimming in a cesspool of negativity of uh-huh. what what do we do with you know i mean i mean we might as well tell you know parents Drink some Kool-Aid and forget about it. I mean, I mean, it felt hopeless. Well, we if felt only. Do you, you
2: know of a kind of Kool-Aid that will do that?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what we were. We were, you know, we were, of course, in jest. I'm not serious at all, but we we were feeling very depressed about the solutions and uh-huh. it's when we had to step back and look at not only our own children but ourselves i mean we uh-huh. you know we've kind of dabbled in that in our book and we've talked about it here on the show of you know through your kids sometimes you tend to discover your own um challenges and giftedness and and what we did was we looked at what was right with our kids kind of mm-hmm. like you did with the dsm and we said you know we, like everyone, we can get so caught up in what's wrong that we forget everything that makes them unique and special. And as Temple Grandin would say, she can't have one without the other, that she wouldn't trade all of the extreme uh, issues that she has dealt with that have made her life difficult. She wouldn't trade it because she also is, is thrilled to have contributed to the accomplishments and to the wonderful things that only she can do.
2: Yeah and I think you know she she's a great uh spokesperson uh in in that respect because she you know she's she's obviously a courageous woman um and and you know you see this this rhetoric that you're describing about looking for what's good and uh, of course is is the cornerstone of the uh neurodiversity movement um which by the way uh I'll plug somebody else's book here Andrew Solomon's book Far from the Tree uh, really wow. uh, explores this very nicely. It's, it's a long book. <laughs> That's an understatement. It's nine hundred pages long. But it's wow. uh, it, yeah. It's, I, I reviewed that book in this month's Harper's. People might be interested to go online and look up that review. But anyway, I, what I wanted to say about that is that with ADHD, it's a little harder to make the that argument only because um, it has you know it hasn't been made yet very well. I have to say, and I remember this part of your book, that you, you, there's no question that many of the kids who qualify for that diagnosis are simply kids who can't fit in to the requirements of the, of the, of the educational system right? and are just poorly suited to it. I, I know this firsthand. My son is one of them. Uh-huh. My son is a child that for years we were told to put him on stimulants. We found that uh, taking away the video games, uh, which are now gone completely from our lives, and uh, working hard to make school a little less awful for him, and getting him involved in the things that he's really good at, like uh, he's 15, last year I bought him a welder, and he's become a proficient welder, and he's doing jobs for local people. Um, Excellent. You know, I've got him out there much to my wife's horror, he's running the chainsaw now and the first thing he did with the chainsaw was sculpt a uh, mushroom out of a, <laughs> out of a lock. You know. <laughs> to 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 find now, is he ever gonna make it in the information economy? No. <laughs> he is not. And that's scary. But mm-hmm. it's a whole lot better than trying to pound this poor square peg into that round
1: hole. Right. Right, well, absolutely, and it's something that that you're right that we you know we can't say enough that you've got to find the strengths, and if you're going to dwell anywhere, that's the place to dwell, and it doesn't mean bury your head in the sand about the challenges, certainly not. I mean, you know um they need coping skills anyone yeah. and and you know it's something Dr. Linda Silverman, who's a wonderful um we call her the goddess of the gifted i mean she's <laughs> she's done a lot of research and she's very mm-hmm. well respected in the gifted community. And she calls it asynchrony, and she says "The greater the gift you'll find sometimes the greater the challenges but it's it's where you know if you really can focus on that gift and it sounds like that's what you've done with your son.
2: Well, we try I mean sometimes we focus on trying not to tear our hair out <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely
1: that's a, that's a common theme amongst parents <laughs> I
2: actually consider it to be an accomplishment. <laughs>
1: Uh huh. Absolutely. <laughs> when, when
2: I manage not to do that.
1: Absolutely. And in your own practice, you, I, I heard this when you were discussing uh, with the interview I listened to earlier, that you talked about how you know your way of practicing is to find alternatives because the DSM isn't going to help you understand the individual or their challenges. Um, it's it's not the place to go. No, no. I mean, look, the DSM the DSM is trivial.
2: The, the joke of all of this is that the DSM is trivial when it comes to really understanding people. Uh, you know, the, the people in my book, I write about how psychiatrists who defend the DSM do it half-heartedly. You know, they damn it with faint praise. And they also suggest that the problem with the DSM is that we all take it too seriously. Now, while that's its own form of cynicism, it's also true. You know the, the DSM, in a way that could have been totally predicted, and and was in some sense exactly what the APA wanted. The DSM, you give you give people a book, and you say, okay, this is the way, this is what's going on with people when they're suffering psychologically. Uh, you know, here's the here's the nine criteria of that, and the four criteria of this. That book is going to be really taken seriously. People love that kind of thing. And lawyers love it, and regulators love it, and lawmakers love it, and doctors love it. So when you know when the DSM is, is really, if you just look at it, it, it shouldn't be taken all that seriously. It, it, it should be trivial. It shouldn't be this this tail that wags all of these big dogs.
1: Right, and and while I totally understand what you're saying and i can i can handle that comment better now than i did actually um one of the top top um people in adhd and i'll reserve his name for now he was a a dear friend (laughs) and and he said that to me once and i felt insulted as a parent this is before any of my education and and Mm -hmm. book writing and so forth I felt insulted because I could understand from his perspective. And he was saying, you know, look, this is we all just sat around, and he was on one of the committees. He said, you know, we just sit around on a, in a hotel room and make the final decisions. And, there you go. N- yeah, and that's what it. you have. And I yeah. said, well, do you understand? Now put yourself in my shoes for a moment <laughs> and all the parents that I represent. You know, it's not that we don't understand that process. It's that we are bound by that process. There's exactly. no other way to get the services and help you need.
2: Exactly. And so when, I mean, look, I, I'm sympathetic with this argument about how we all take it too seriously. But in the end, you know, you have to take, and uh, the, the APA has to take responsibility for right. the way the book gets used. It's totally disingenuous to say, well, you know, we, di- we didn't mean it that way, and basically blame the victim. <laughs>
1: right absolutely absolutely and that and that is the whole and that's the other side that we just absolutely love that you really do so well in the book of woe is get into the political side of this because at the end of the day we you know we we've got to call the monsters the monsters that they are and the 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 political ramifications, um, you know, and, and I'm not saying that's all on the drug companies. It's on anybody in power who who has al- alternative ideas for how to wield that power rather than what it started out to be, and that is how can we best help the patient.
2: Psychiatrists, unfortunately, and, and even the best of them, and I would say that the best of them that I met in this whole uh, couple of years that I was, uh, in, in embedded here uh, Would have been Somebody like Alan Francis They Have a really hard time Understanding power They don't see themselves As wielding power They see themselves As exercising knowledge They don't understand or and, and to the extent That they have power They think they deserve it Not because they're arrogant Although they can be But because they think They have specialized Advanced knowledge And so for them uh, For a guy like Al Francis, it's okay to have this book of useful constructs in which only the psychiatrists really understand what it means to to say that they're constructs. The psychiatrists hold that knowledge more or less privately. Um, They just don't get that from the other side, that just doesn't feel right. And, and and in fact it isn't right and 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 when it comes to the surface as it does in these drug company scandals the the problem of power becomes quite clear
1: right you're you're absolutely right, and I know we're we're almost out of time here, and i uh, you have mentioned and, and actually um, you cover it very well in your book your differences and your similarities with Dr. Francis, and you know we we agree I mean I, there's so much of what he's saying and doing that I commend him for, I really do, and you know we were just thrilled to see that he was willing to come out and speak against this and even admit you know his own his own place in this i mean that takes a lot of humility yes. Yes. And,
2: and there's no no question about it he's he's a brave man and he needs to be he needs to be uh commended for for what he's doing and 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 he he he, he would like it if all of the focus could be on the mistakes and the the the, the sort of bad politics of DSM5 meaning that you know it's, it's like a one bad apple argument
1: um, right, and th- right. that that
2: that is the biggest difference between Al Francis and me, and it's created quite a bit of uh, conflict and sometimes rancor between us. Is that I see this as a historic problem that you know goes back, as I was saying earlier, 150 years, and uh, uh, Dr. Francis uh, sees it as a, um, a a local problem that really everything was okay until this bunch of guys got their hands on the DSM-5, um, and I I tend to think that that's just a little bit goes a little too easy on the institution of psychiatry. Interesting point here, though. Psychiatry, more than most medical professions, relies on the placebo effect. All all medicine relies on the placebo effect, but psychiatry more so. And this placebo effect, in turn, relies on confidence. And one way in which Dr. Francis is correct is that it is to undermine confidence in psychiatry is to reduce its effectiveness, there's no question about it. And and in my book that is not as big of a problem as it is in his book because I also see that psychiatry may be causing a lot of damage. We don't know this yet and this is the really scary thing. I'm not persuaded completely by Robert Whitaker's argument in Anatomy of an Epidemic that most of our mental illness is being caused by psychiatric drugs. Mm-hmm. I I just don't I don't see the evidence for that. That's a but,
1: little too far the other way. Well, right.
2: maybe. I, 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 Like I said earlier, I think 50 years from now, a lot of this is going to look exactly like that. It's going to look like what the Romans did when they you know, drank all the water coming out of their lead pipes. I, I really believe that. But I don't think that evidence is in yet, and I think it's premature. But just the fact that the question can be raised credibly and with a certain amount of scientific integrity, just that fact alone, Extremely frightening. Just the possibility that psychiatric drugs cause psychiatric illness—that that's not just some nutcase out there, you know, yelling into the hurricane. That's a right. pretty reputable journalist who's done a lot of really heavy research and right. and brought up a lot of really important cases. So oh, you're right. So the fact is that I, I think the confidence in psychiatry may need to be undermined a little bit. I think we might need to get a little more critical of psychiatry, um, and and so that that's that's I agree with him up to that point, but at that point we we definitely diverge.
1: <laughs> well, and and part of it is which I think which makes you a really unique person and a unique um, in in a very unique position, and that is although you are an insider, you you are. Um, you know, that's that's your career. It's been, you know, part of that field. At the same time, um, you know, Doctor Francis is more entrenched and I, I had a a dear friend, a doctor, um, in ADHD when I first began all of these Um, journeys and my exploration for answers which i never dreamed in a million years would take me to the places it's taken me and i mean i was just a parent looking for a few simple answers and here i feel like i'm on a crusade now becky and i both do (laughs) but um he said that and, and he was also um aware of another friend had told me he asked me if i knew who thomas Kuhn was and i didn't and he said he is the the person who invented the phrase paradigm shift and he i read a book called the paradigm shifting the business of the future and what really struck me in that um book was that when there's a problem that's reached epidemic proportions, and it's everyone knows we need a paradigm shift. The people who are entrenched in that current paradigm, it's it's too difficult to see it, and even if they see it, it's even more difficult to speak out against the very thing they've dedicated their lives to. Well, yes, yeah, and that, that, that's Dr. Francis.
2: Yeah. Well, you know the thing is, Dr. Francis knows exactly what you're saying is correct the problem that he and every other psychiatrist with integrity has is that um there is no new paradigm and so you know they're they're in this bad spot where they know the thing they've got is really problematic but they've got nothing to replace it with mm-hmm. and that that's the that's the real moral of the DSM5 story they started out by hoping that they would effect a paradigm shift but soon discovered there's nothing to shift to, so they're stuck with what they have.
1: That's right, but as but as you have so candidly told them, <laughs> and and told everyone with your work in the Book of Woe, and that is that's not a good enough answer anymore.
2: That, no, that, I, I, right, yeah. yeah, saying saying that we're stuck with it, you know, turns them into the victims. Like, no, man, right.
1: Yeah, you, know, right. you
2: know, if if you can't do any better than this, then then level with us and let's all sort of figure out what to do about that fact. Don't right. don't continue to insist. Well, this has to be what we do because it's what we've always done. I mean, that's that's just you know that's ridiculous.
1: Well, that that and and I don't know if you're aware of this, and I I was hoping to mention it. I know when we were you know reading just volumes of information and researching for Bright Not Broken. I ran across I it was in DSM-4 um, I think in the introduction, or it could have been in the afterward, about knowing that this categorical system had outlived its usefulness, but the yes. administrative nightmare was just more than anybody could comprehend. And so they were basically saying, "It's it's too big to fail." And I thought, "Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, we know something's wrong, but nobody in the know is going to do anything about it because it's too much of an administrative headache." Right. And I. You know, as parents, we were shouting, "My child's worth more than an administrative headache," yeah, and yeah, I realized yeah. that's a lifetime of an administrative headache to to try to change it. Right. But it doesn't mean it's right. And yes. you know, all we can do is is your approach. I mean, we certainly agree with that, and that is, you've got to find alternatives around it. And I I think you're not alone in that view. I think there are many international organizations that are taking a stand. Right and um i I thank you very much
2: uh, well you're, you're for... certainly welcome i am It's been a pleasure to talk to you and um you know i, I hope I hope somebody listening out there will buy the book because <laughs> I, I I think it's a book that a lot of people who um have children in in the system will uh, help them really get a perspective on their child's treatment and how exactly to address their child's practitioners.
1: I think you're exactly right it's healthy education for any parent or individual who is affected by um diagnosis or these challenges and or even um by the giftedness that um at some point may be snagged with a diagnosis and I think it's really important to educate ourselves on the on the full scope here and you've done a great job of that well, and if thank you would. You. Tell us, um, tell our listeners where they can find you. Are you? Um,
2: uh, no, I'm at garygreenbergonline.com. Gary
1: okay, and, and they can uh, find your book anywhere.
2: Uh, anywhere, yeah. It's in it's in the bookstores. I just got back from a nationwide book tour, so I know it's at least in the bookstores I went to.
1: <laughs> wonderful, and, uh, wonderful. Uh, of
2: course, they they can always uh, you know go, go to the big bad Amazon if they want to, but they well, should buy it at their local bookstore.
1: Absolutely. Well, we we thank you. It's been just an exciting conversation. I'm sorry Rebecca couldn't be here. I know she yeah. had um, some family delays tonight, but I know uh, we'll have to have you back so she can okay. <laughs> she can well, weigh in great. because she, um, she certainly has as much to say, if not more, than I do on this DSM topic. And right. we thank you. We'll keep in touch, and we'll certainly be recommending your book.
2: Okay. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Gary. You have right. a wonderful right. evening. Right. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye.
2: 18 plus.